Explosive episode 108, Finn Family Moomin Draw by Dervy Anson. Now this special episode goes out to my patrons to whom I'm very grateful for their support. One of the things about the Shaper tier of patrons is they get to nominate books and I've got several suggestions lined up. And the Moomin books, which is one of the uh, one of the shortlisted ones, are really convenient because we've been reading them to our five-year-old. So uh, fresh in my mind, they're also quick to read. And uh, I'm going to focus on Finn Family Moomin Troll, which is the third of Tovey Anson's Moomin books. Um, being a children's book, it's pretty short. And I read it again on a couple of nights just before bedtime, partly as a, a change of pace from the June sequence. But um, despite the short length and the target age, I think it has really quite a bit of depth as far as its myth and landscape is concerned. And in particular, the core of the novel around the hobgoblin in his hat and his search for the king's ruby. The descriptions of the chaos that ensues from the Moomins finding the Hobgoblin's hat are really good. And overall, this gave me a really strong OSR adventure vibe in the vein of um, The Gardens of Yin uh, by Emily Allen, I think, or um, Deep Carbon Observatory by Patrick Stewart. Uh, Deep Carbon Observatory might raise a couple of eyebrows, but um, I still think there's some commonality there. Anyway, as usual, I'm going to give a brief synopsis, then I'll make some remarks, and followed by a few media recommendations. Here we go. So the synopsis. Finn Family Moomin Troll was originally called Troll Carlin's Hat. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, which translates as The Magician's Hat. And the magician in this case is the Hobgoblin, who dwells on the moon and rides a back panther and presents as a gentleman in top hat and tails. And he's obsessed with finding the king's ruby, the the, the, the largest and greatest ruby in the world. So he's been travelling the world looking for it. And for the most part, the Hobgoblin is this mysterious figure with the only evidence of him being his discarded hat, which causes all kinds of magical chaos, as well as occasional glimpses of a shadowy figure riding a panther during storms and other tense moments, and um, uh, a few campfire stories about the legend of the uh, of the Hobgoblin. So I guess I should go over the various characters and also species in the Moomin's books. Um, and it's quite likely you already know roughly what a Moomin looks like, sort of like a bipedal hippopotamus. A Moomin Mama, Moomin Papa and Moomin Troll are Moomins. Uh, the Snork and the Snork Maiden are Snorks, who are a lot like Moomins, but with further changes colour according to their mood, and they have hair on their heads. Um, and the Snork Maiden is, at least in the early books, Moomin Troll's romantic interest. Then there's the Hemulins. They're, they're, they're also Moomin-like, the way that they're drawn in the book. Um, the Hemulin in this story has uh, has basically hair around a bald spot and uh, glasses on the end of his nose. And Hemulins are generally characterised by their interests, I think. And this Hemulin starts off depressed at having completed his stunt collection. But then he's encouraged to start a different hobby, which ends up being botany. And uh, he's happy with that again. And that is also a plot element. A couple of other characters who gravitate around the Moomin household include Snufkin, who is Moomin Troll's best friend, the Muskrat, who's a philosopher of sorts, and Sniff, who is, I think, canine, and effectively the adopted child of the Moomin family. Um, and towards the end of the book, we meet Thingamy and Bob, who are a couple of, I guess, monkey or imp-like characters. Um, then there's the Hobgoblin and the Groak, who is this kind of miserable spirit who freezes the ground and withers the plants wherever she walks, and the Hatterfatners, who live on an island that the Moomins visit partway through the book. Uh, the island's called Lonely Island, I think. So the book starts with a household waking up to spring, uh, and they've been in hibernation for around 100 days. 
Uh, and there's this really nice preamble through Moomin Valley that describes the waking of the whole valley, which includes um, spirits in the trees combing their hair, earthworms greeting Moomin Troll and asking him to convey their regards to his parents. Um, but the real story kicks off when Moomin Troll, Snufkin and Sniff decide to climb the mountain and find the Hobgoblin's top hat at the top. Now, the Hobgoblin is also foreshadowed in the first chapter uh, when the Snort Maiden and Moomin Troll realise that they've both had the same dream during their long winter sleep about a, quotes nasty man in a high black hat who grinned at me, end quotes. So the hat is duly brought home and causes all kind of mischief. And after Moomin Papa tries it on and decides that hats aren't really his thing, the hat becomes a wastebasket and it then transforms anything that's put into it. So first they discard some eggshells into it and these become little clouds that they can then ride around. Uh, and then Moomin Troll hides in it in a game of hide and seek and he's physically transformed into a pretty much the total opposite of what he actually is, someone tall and spindly. It says that his fat parts became thin and thin parts became fat. Um, and uh, he only regains his original shape when his mother realises that this newcomer in the house, who is all tall and spindly, is really her son Moomin Troll, at which point the, the spell is broken. Um, and after that, they kind of decide to get rid of the hat, and Moomin Troll and Snufkin are given the task to take it away and dispose of it. But on their way, they manage to dip the hat into a river and find that it's transformed the water into raspberry juice, which, uh, yeah, very nice. Um, it also transforms three fish into canaries. But anyway, what they do is they elect to hide the hat in a cave. The hat doesn't actually stay hidden for too long, as the muskrat takes his leave of the Moomin's house to live in the cave as a hermit. Uh, which is much to the alarm of Moomin Troll and Snufkin, because they say, oh, it's going to discover the hat. Um, the muskrat gets frightened out of the cave, uh, and this is after he's put his false teeth into the hat for safekeeping, and we don't actually find out what happened to them. We don't hear much more of the hat for a while, because at the time when the, uh, of all the commotion of the muskrat being frightened, um, the Moomins and friends also discover a boat on the beach, this great big boat that they say, well, it's it's been washed up, so it's obviously ours. And they christen it the adventure, and uh, they christen it with a bottle of uh, magical raspberry juice that um, that Moomin Troll and Snufkin just happen to be able to find because they know where the hat is. Um, but anyway, they they christen the adventure, and everyone sets sail for Lonely Island, where they shelter from a storm. They also meet the Hatterfatners, who are kind of glowing tube-like nature spirits that are deaf and blind and communicate through touch and conduct electricity. Um, and uh, set fire to some things by accident as a result uh, and burn off the Snort Maiden's hair. But during this time, this excursion onto the island where they're adventuring around, the Hemulin discovers a barometer that I think belongs to the Hattifatners and that's why they follow everyone back to the camp that they've made. Um, during the storm, we get a second glimpse of the Hobgoblin, quote, and suddenly he saw a small black rider on something black, like a horse with short legs. Only for a moment were they visible against the creamy white crest of the cloud bank. The rider's cloak billowed out like a wing. They rose higher. Then they were lost in a blinding network of lightning. The clouds obscured the sun, and rain was driving like a grey curtain over the sea. I've seen the hobgoblin, thought Snufkin. It must have been the hobgoblin and his black panther. They really exist. They aren't just an old fairy tale. End quote. So the adventure to Lonely Island covers the third and fourth chapters. Then, in the fifth chapter, we return to Moomin Valley later in the year, around late summer. Uh, so the, the third and the fourth chapters are pretty much self-contained. 
um, although they have this common narrative. Um, and when they return in the fifth chapter to Moomin Valley, the um, according to the narrative, the Hobgoblin's hat has, quote, come back into favour, with no real further explanation on how it gets back into the family home. And so once again, it's a waste paper basket with hilarious consequences. Um, the children, who include Moomin Troll, Snork and Snork Maiden, Snuffkin and others, go off to sleep in the cave because it's generally really hot and making them all quite irritable. Whereas Moomin Mama stays home and keeps house and she's grateful of the quiet and she can look out onto the gardens uh, with the soft, soft uh, August rain uh, watering everything. But she also finds one of the Hemulans plants that he's forgotten to press into his collection. These, um, they're referred to as poisonous pink perennials, which is just it's fabulous alliteration that sounds very sinister. And um, she just throws them away into the hat. That results in a riot of vines growing throughout the house and covering it inside and out in vegetation. Um, meanwhile, the children hunt and catch an enormous monster fish called the Mameluk, which they then take home to cook. And they also share stories around the fire about the Hobgoblin and his obsession with the King's Ruby. When they return home, they find the house totally overgrown, although this is overcome by some judicious hacking away and a big bonfire on which they also roast the huge fish. So it's it's very much all um, paced like a set of picaresque adventures with the um, with the barest thread of narrative hanging together. Oh, the other thing that comes out of the Hobgoblin's hat, I think at some point they, they threw a dictionary in there or something, and as a result, words start climbing, climbing all over the place and, you know, climbing all over the walls and, um, you know, much like insects. Anyway, in Chapter 6, Thingamy and Bob are introduced, having arrived with a suitcase, which... It's not revealed at the time, but it contains the King's Ruby, which apparently belongs to the Groke. And after a uh, after the Groke appears, and it's a very sinister character coming along that, as I say, freezes the ground that she steps on and just looms out of the darkness just outside the Moomin's house, um, wanting the contents of the suitcase that Thingamy and Bob took. So what happens is they, they then have a, a mock court trial to decide on ownership of the king's ruby eventually the groke agrees to accept the hobgoblin's hat in exchange and that's the last we see of this hat um although the hobgoblin is wearing another such hat when he turns up in the seventh and final chapter so the last chapter is a large party is thrown for the whole valley after moom and mama's purse is found by thingamy and bob this is right at the end of the summer moom and mama's purse by the way was originally stolen by thingamy and bob because they liked sleeping in it but that's kind of glossed over uh, but anyway the other notable thing that happens in the last chapter as well as the party is that uh, snuffkin leaves moomin valley to travel and this is much to the dismay of moomin troll then finally the hobgoblin makes an appearance and when he's told that well sorry you can't actually have the king's ruby he instead chooses to grant everyone wishes which is an interesting way of coping with disappointment um they're limited wishes you know small wishes but he's still able to transform appearances which is something he does uh, for the snork maiden although she isn't terribly pleased about it um he can conjure small things from nowhere and he's also able to take away moomin troll's sorrows at snuffkin leaving and this is moomin mama's wish that moomin troll is no longer sad at snuffkin no longer being in the valley and um the wish is granted and this was particularly interesting because i would always expect such wishes to be interpreted in the worst possible way as you know grimm's fairy tales and all that um and it could have turned out that you know moomin troll forgets snuffkin entirely or has only bad memories of snuffkin or something like that um 
actually it's the other way around it's interpreted in the best most benign way which is uh, shown in this quote immediately the sadness flew out of Moomin Troll's heart his longing just became expectancy and that felt much better end quote that's the end of the book pretty much I mean the, the party and the hobgoblin's arrival mark the end of summer and this is underscored by the final two paragraphs quote but perhaps the happiest of all is Moomin Troll who goes home through the garden with his mother just as the moon is fading in the dawn and the trees rustling in the morning breeze which comes up from the sea it is autumn in Moomin Valley for how else can spring come back again so there's this sense of seasonality in the stories, you know, no, noting that we started in spring when the household was just out of hibernation and then carried on through a very hot summer, enduring also rains and thunderstorms. And that's the end. But then there are also some footnotes, which are actually quite easy to miss if you're reading the ebook version. Like I'm, I'm reading a Kindle version. Um, these are nearly all remarks from the author, for example, on how they believe that all Hemulans wear dresses or how to start a fire with birch bark or... What happens to the muskrat's false teeth when he put them into the hobgoblin's hat in the cave? And these these are answered very briefly, and they don't really they don't really elaborate on anything. Uh, what they did though was uh, they reminded me of the chapters that I just read, which was kind of kind of a nice reinforcement. Also, right at the end of the book, there's this really gorgeous map of Moomin Valley, um, and I'll, I'll link to the wikia page in the show notes so you can find it. So that's the synopsis. So I'm going to make some remarks now. Um, now, this is an RPG podcast, as you know, and every book I cover is viewed through the lens of role-playing utility. And nearly all my thoughts here were at the OSR end of role-playing. So I'm kind of going to deviate slightly to talk about what the OSR is. Um, it is a divisive term, by the way. Uh, I'm just mentioning OSR. It means I've probably lost a couple of listeners. And um, I think also... I'm going to get a few blank looks by mentioning Moomins and the OSR in the same breath, but hear me out. In the last decade, so 2010 to 2020, um, the OSR was the thing that really caught on. There was a certain amount of drama, which I won't comment on. Uh, there was a certain amount of uh, manufactured OSR versus story games, culture war. Um, you also had a generational divide on what OSR meant and how you played it and so on. Um, and I do remember a quote by none other than Ron Edwards, who on, I think, the Walking Eye podcast, and he once said that um, people can't talk about D&D without losing their shit. Uh, and I think that does kind of sum up the uh, OSR as the old school renaissance. The question is, what is your version of it that is being reborn? And a lot of people disagreed with each other. Um I don't propose to second-guess the various perspectives on what the OSR is. I only had um, second- or third-hand experience of them. But it is useful to look at the output in the indie old-school space over the past decade, I reckon. Uh, in the past, I've seen reference to first-, second- and third-wave OSR, and that's something you should take with a pinch of salt, because the person who coined the phrase, or at least one of the people who did it, was basically using it to big up their own material. Still, to make the point... I think you can split it into three camps which kind of chart the evolution of what the OSR is. First, there's the purists who want to recreate the early games, not only in tone but also mechanical feel. Uh, and I would include Osric, Swords and Wizardry, Blue Home and so on. 
Um, I assume that Old School Essentials also fits this description. I'm a bit behind the curve. I haven't read it. I have heard people talk very positively about its organisation and presentation. And that's kind of uh, one of the things that this kind of corner of the OSR does. It, it cleans up the original content, um, simplifies things, makes things more accessible. All of that is a really good thing in and of itself to improve on something that, that is already established such that it generally improves the accessibility. So that's the first camp. The second camp, which was this the, the second stage? I'm not sure. Um, I would call it the Appendix N Fetishists, uh, which vary in complexity. Uh, so the, at one end, you have massive tomes like Dungeon Raw Classics and Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. They tend to be very specifically sword and sorcery, uh, which, depending on who you ask, might mean cunning barbarians and thieves living off their wits. Uh, it might mean shades of cosmic horror, with sorcery always extracting a price, and so on. Um, there's a fairly good sequence of Good Friends of Jackson Elias episodes where they talk about what sword and sorcery is, uh, and that's worth seeking out. Um, I'd add Crips and Things, and also Lamentations of the Flame Princess to this list, uh, and neither of those are particularly complex at all. Um, Crips and Things actually is based on swords and wizardry, and Lamentations of the Flame Princess is uh, basically Mensa D&D &D with some tweaks. And so um, a lot of these times, all of these systems are uh, like the base pure system, but with additional bells and whistles. So they, the implementation might include something about the spell lists or the inclusion of some mechanic to better serve the experience, you know, like sort of the cost extracted by doing magic, for example. And then finally, what I think is mostly considered as the third wave, there are the games that step outside Appendix N and outside the established conventions of original D&D. And often they do both. So for game systems, for example, we have the Black Hack, which reconfigures many of the moving parts to give a better experience of the thing that the, I assume the author originally got from most D&D. Uh, White Hack does this as well, and I, I particularly like White Hack. Um, whereas the Black Hack strips everything down for providing an, an energetic D&D fantasy experience, White Hack turns the system into a very freeform and open system, uh, with a lot of scope for player creative input and moulding the system to fit your game. Um, if I remember correctly, there's a great video on a D&D 5e player's take on White Hack where they, uh, they're enthusing about the, um, the simplicity of White Hack and its ability to be taken and shaped according to the wishes of the user. Um, and I thought that was a, a very positive thing to see coming out. Uh, other games, Beyond the Wall goes for the Ursula Le Guin and Lloyd Alexander experience. Um, but it also enhances the system to support that with uh, world creation at the table tools like character and world playbooks. Um, it's tweaked the OSR rule set a bit. Uh, its magic is quite nice and, and feels different and feels like it, it works very well for that kind of tone. Um, so generally it works really well because it's got a lot of supporting material that's player facing at the table. But most of the third wave stuff, I think you would call them modules or, you know, setting books or source books or whatever. Um, so for modules, I'm thinking about Deep Carbon Observatory, Gardens of Yin, Ultraviolet Grasslands, um, 
stuff by the Hydra Collective, like Operation Unfathomable, um, the Nelsonian Arts Council camps, I think. Some of their content is oriented towards Troika, which is great in itself. Uh, but it's interesting to see where the branding lies. Um, by that I mean, if you're playing a mainstream game, you often say, oh, it's our weekly Call of Cthulhu game or our Simbarum game. With OSR games, you're more likely to say that, uh, oh, it's our weekly Operation Unfathomable game or Ultraviolet Grasslands game or Yun Suin game. And uh, it just happens to use the engine that works best for everyone, but that's not really part of the brand. And I think that that hints at the, the ethos of the OSR. Um, so just to sort of go on a little bit more of this tangent, um, the OSR has always made me think of Linux and other computer systems. Uh, so by that, I mean, um, you know how mainstream computer systems like Windows and Mac seek to develop their own app stores and control the user experience and access to software? I mean, they don't completely control it, but they package it in that way so that the end user sees this kind of storefront. Um, and to a lesser extent, but in a similar way, many mainstream RPG lines do this. You know, they produce a game title and then all the modules they produce are in support of that game line. And the suggestion is that you buy this module because it's for this game system. And, uh, and of course, you know, experienced people can take that and they will plug it in wherever they like into their gaming uh, routine. But uh, the, the branding is all oriented towards this sort of monolithic, homogeneous offering. Compare this to Linux. Um, there is no one Linux. There are many distributions of Linux and they do different things and they may vary in look and feel or they may vary in how they package software or they might vary in a more fundamental operating level. For example, they, they use system D or an init system or something like that. But the ability to mix and match to suit your use case is in the hands of the user. Um, now, most users will probably stick mostly within their own distribution of choice. But the key thing for me is the link between the platform and what you do on the platform isn't nearly as strong. And that th there isn't a branded app store. There certainly isn't the feel of a corporate entity, no matter how benign, telling you that there is only one way of doing things. So for me, what the indie OSR space has achieved seems to be to assume most system branding or notions of there is one way to play. And I think that's a really useful message. It's obvious to seasoned gamers with 30 years of experience, but it's a good thing to be made explicit um, for the general public of RPG consumers. You know, this idea that you don't need to buy into a game line, you can buy something and then you're encouraged to use it how you want to fit it in and what gives value to you. So by now you're probably wondering what the heck does this have to do with Moomin Valley? Um, well, if nothing else, that I think there's a strong commonality between the organisation of this book and the organisation of an OSR module. And the headings I've considered when I was writing my notes for this comparison are 1. The Sandbox 2. Geopolitics and History 3. Internal Consistency and Inward Facing 4. Ecology and Characters and 5. Liminality 
And there are obviously also, if you're comparing the Moomins to OSR, there's stylistic points, aesthetic points. You know, the, the map at the end of the book screams OSR fantasy to me. Um, in fact, this weekend I saw someone on Twitter sharing a Tove Janssen-styled and inspired hex map, which they're using for their own OSR campaign. But anyway, going through that list I've made, first, I think... The Moomins are a really good example of a sandbox environment with its own ecology and geography. Um, now, in my opinion, what you need in a sandbox is a clear sight of the whole map, which invites exploration. Because if players aren't even aware of a location on the map, then they're not going to explore it on their own initiative. And in the book, the characters choose to travel to several locations, which include you know, up the mountain, to the beach, to Lonely Island, and so on. Um, now, I, I, I guess you could argue, when does a sandbox become a hex crawl? And I would negotiate that question by asking, where is the horizon? And does the play area sit within the horizon or extend beyond it? Um, ultimately, there's a bit of both. We're not talking about absolutes. We're talking about blurring the lines between things. Um, when, I, when I was on the Frankenstein RPG podcast, I put forward Beyond the Wall and Further Afield for setting. And one of the things Further Afield does is have locations which are distant and which you know a few basic facts about, but they're not 100% defined and you also don't define the spaces in between. And that kind of works for a sandbox that extends beyond line of sight, but still has some boundaries. But anyway, uh, Moomin Valley does fit this kind of setup and the Moomins do travel within the sandbox. Also, they're aware of locations beyond the boundaries through which they can travel like the moon. But importantly, the moon, even though it's not accessible to the Moomins, it is part of the environment and it is a haunt of the Hobgoblins. So it is accessible to at least one of the characters. Now, the second point I made about geopolitics or history, um, there is the legend of the Hobgoblin, which I think the Snork recounts to the others. Um, and that bit of information serves a very specific purpose. It's not meant as a sort of a bit of um, world-building backstory so much as reminding us of the presence of the Hobgoblin throughout the story. Mostly we're not encumbered at all by any kind of complicated history and this is partly because there's again this, this well-defined sandbox of Moomin Valley and I think I would argue that a lot of OSR content has a very good control over history and geopolitics. Um, usually there's very little of either. I'll tend only to elicit details which are actually relevant to the sandbox. And this is this then comes on to my third point, which is what I mean by inward-facing and internally consistent. Um, so characters exist to have relationships to one another and interact with each other in the defined space. And this is true even when the characters have come from the outside. So I think uh, in Deep Carbon Observatory, there are a couple of antagonists called the Crow Twins, and they may be heading in the same direction as the PCs. So whoever they're agents of is irrelevant. What matters is the mindset and motivation of those characters, which then dictates how they interact with the sandbox and with other people, uh, just in, in the way that PCs may come from outside the sandbox. But what matters is that their, their actions and their agency within the sandbox. Um, so then the Hobgoblin is a character from outside normal space in Moomin Valley, but the points of contact, which are dreams or, or sightings in the storms or legends, these are all within the sandbox and they all contribute to the narrative. I think um, you know the, these three first headings, the, the sandbox, internal consistency, inward-facing, lack of external geopolitics, um, 
they're all part of the same thing. I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, but but I think sort of splitting them out that way is kind of my argument about why why those elements are important. Then I guess on the fourth point, then we we come to ecology and characters, and this is often where there's a lot of content in OSR modules with monsters and characters you like to meet, um, and this is what makes them shine because these are the real contact points and the texture in the module, and um, I hardly need to elaborate further. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, what I would remark though is that a lot of the joy of Moom and Valley are the encounters with different peoples, like the aforementioned forest spirits and the Fatners and Hemulans and Snorks and other characters. I think the only thing I would say, which may be a very obvious thing to say, is that they are treated as characters and individuals, not races. I mean that their races are remarked upon but they all have individual personality and motivations. And this sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but I, I think it's something that is actually very you know, necessary to bear in mind. I did have this side thought when comparing the ecology of a sandbox, which is entirely contained, with something like Call of Cthulhu or Vampire. So in, in that kind of game, uh, and... and partly because it's a primary world and therefore people can more easily imagine traveling outside the sandbox um, the factions and the ecology and so on all come from outside the sandbox and the play area is just a microcosm of something larger it's answerable to something external um, and this is of course it is what gives rise to the idea of you know global conspiracies and um, monolithic shadowy entities that uh, that their footprint is being being seen by the players doing the investigation uh, but they exist outside that and you kind you don't get that in an OSR module for the most part partly because of course they they tend to be standalone and it's trivial to introduce it if you should want to uh, but I think that um, rather than asking big questions and wrapping the game up in global conspiracies and, and external agencies. Um, I prefer not doing that and, you know, focusing things in the here and now. I mean, I was wondering how much this influences player behavior, this setup, whether you've got an external influence or not. Games like Call of Cthulhu are predicated on investigation and information gathering. Um, and maybe there's an argument that your ability to cross the boundaries of the sandbox will actually change the way that you perceive and play a game. Maybe. Anyway, the last point, uh, the last bullet point I had was about liminality. Um, so the idea that you're at the threshold of something magical. Um, and I throw that word around a bit. And often it features in my thinking about primary world fantasy like... Um, Jonathan Carroll's Land of Laughs or Clive Barker's Magica. Um, so when we think about Moomin Valley, both magic and technology are things. Um, you know, for example, the Hemiland studies botany and finds a barometer and generally seeks to understand and collect things. Um, and the Hobgoblin can actually practice magic, uh, which is something that kind of comes from outside the normal sphere of the Moomin Valley, but it does exist. Um, then there's the Groke, which is the, an expression of misery and is, for a large part, unexplained. I mean, she turns the ground to frost when she walks. We're not exactly sure where she comes from, at least not in this in this book, which I think that's the first appearance of the Groke in the series. 
It's also a completely secular setting. Um, there's no philosophy or religion. There are just effects which are either understood or not, um, but they're pretty much taken at face value. So um, I think to sum up, aesthetics aside, the Moomin books are a really cogent example of a sandbox setup on those terms. And so I, I think worth reading for that reason alone. But then, of course, you also get the wonderful line art in the books, which you know fits very well with a certain kind of fantasy vibe. And the last point I wanted to make is about the passing of time and how this is presented in the book from spring through autumn. And I think at least some of the modules I've read approach things like the weather and the changes with the passing of time. Uh, and of course, some sandboxes are static worlds in bubbles where things don't change um, unless they are encountered and people move to them. Uh, I think the Gardens of Yin describes itself as a perpendicular world. So it's unlike a parallel world where um, you can enter and exit and it will be consistent uh, wherever you go. Um, the idea is that um, the further you move from the entry point, the stranger things become in the perpendicular world. Anyway, um, those are my comments in sort of semi-essay form. I, I think the last thing I'll say is that a lot of people I know have dismissed the OSR as using an outdated game system or being focused on, I know, certain kinds of very reductive gameplay. And um, my feeling is it's not about the game system. The game system does something, certainly, but the experience of the game system is separate from the experience of the module. Anyway, on to some thoughts about media. First, I want to recommend Fear of a Black Dragon's episode, uh, particularly on Emily Allen's The Gardens of Yin. Uh, it has some solid choices for the companion adventures, including Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. And that whole episode is worth a listen, and I'm a big fan of the series in general. I'm struggling to think of other media which is like the Moomins. Um, I really can't remember much about the Moomins TV shows, uh, so I probably need to seek those out and show them to our son. Um, I would direct your attention to the Netflix series Hilda, which is based on the graphic novel by Luke Pearson of the same name. And this was something mentioned by Tom McGranary when he joined me to talk about Invisible City in episode 90. Now, Hilda isn't the same setup exactly. It's not a sandbox, and there's the division between the human world and the fairy world. Um, and so there's a lot of threshold crossing there as well. Uh, but there is something of a Scandinavian influence, um, which is, is conscious. And it was directly influenced by the Moomins. Um, Luke Pearson, I think, is a British author, um, but it's, it's intentionally made to look like uh, 20th century Scandinavia. And it's great. Um, so the other bits of media I want to mention are random OSR picks that I think are good. Um, so I've already name-dropped the likes of Ultraviolet Grasslands, uh, Deep Calm and Observatory, Operation Unfathomable. Um, I'd like to also mention Scott Malthouse's Tachendria system, which at some point I think I read it as Dunsanian role-playing, so you know, specifically for the worlds of Lord Dunsany. Um, although now it's just t subtitled Fantastical Role-Playing, uh, which is a good title. Um, and I'm mentioning this more for the feel that I got for than for general OSR-ness, but uh, it's worth checking out. Um, there's also Beyond the Wall, which I've mentioned more than a few times. Um, there's Into the Odd, uh, which is kind of OSR-adjacent. Um, I've just received the preprint PDF for the updated version that's gone through Kickstarter recently. And I'm mentioning all of these mostly because they deviate from the cosmic horror sword and sorcery TPK type of OSR play. 
that um, most people think is what OSR about is about. And so I, th I think they're worth checking out because they're not the same. Okay, thank you for listening. Now, because this is a special patron episode, I'd like to round things off with special thanks to my current patrons, who are Becky Anderson, Lee Barlow, Richie Singler, Kit Finn, Jeremy Gilbert, John Hagen, Tom McGrenery, Brian Parker, George Poles. Thank you all. I really appreciate your support. Now, if you're not a patron and you might like to be one, please follow the link in the show notes. Uh, but also a like, share and subscribe is always welcome, as well as a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're someone who's taken the time to give me a rating, I appreciate that too. Thanks. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.